Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com. Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We have the pleasure of being joined by two guests this week. Richard Peck is Vice President of Development and Philanthropy Service at New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Rick leads the Foundation's Philanthropy and Donor Services team, overseeing all aspects of the development, donor engagement, and donor services. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Thank you very much for having me. And our second guest is Jonathan Gassman. John is the CEO and co-founder of the Gassman Financial Group, a New York City-based public accounting firm, and is co-founder of the G&G Planning Concepts Incorporated, a financial planning firm. Jonathan is also the co-founder and CEO of the Business Owners Resource Group, a team of highly skilled financial planners, attorneys, accountants, and bankers. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. Love to be here. (laughs) And uh, you, all of our listeners who are big estate planning nerds like myself can look forward to listening to uh, Rick and John put on their own podcast as part of the AICPA charitable series, which is uh, coming forward, so keep an eye on that. Our topic today, in what's an increasingly common occurrence on this show, is a still living one, Mackenzie Scott, formerly Mackenzie Bezos. Scott's a novelist and philanthropist. She has a net worth of roughly $57 billion, so just a bit, owing to a 4% stake in Amazon. As such, Scott is the third wealthiest woman in the United States and the 21st wealthiest individual in the entire world. She's known for her involvement in the founding and development of Amazon, as well as her now dissolved marriage to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. In 2006, she won an American Book Award for her debut novel, The Testing of Luther Albright. She's been executive director of Bystander Revolution since she founded it in 2014 and was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2020. Scott's also a signatory to the Giving Pledge, a commitment to give at least half of her wealth to charity. In 2020, she made about $6 billion in charitable gifts, one of the largest annual distributions by a private individual to working charities. She's thus far donated a further three-ish billion in 2021. Scott's philanthropy is notable not only for its sheer volume, but for also its breadth and how quickly the funds are actually dispersed. The New York Times credits her with turning traditional philanthropy on its head by, and I quote, dispersing her money quickly and without much hoopla. Ms. Scott has pushed the focus away from the giver and onto the nonprofits she's trying to help. So the $8 billion she's given away since 2020 has been spread across 670 different organizations, and according to recipients, of which we should note Rick's organization is one, given completely free of obligations with no strings attached. 
This brings us to another interesting aspect of Scott's philanthropy. Despite its breadth and speed, this is no scattershot operation simply papering the town with money. Scott and her advisors take a data-driven and intentional approach. In a 2020 Medium post discussing her giving, Scott explains, I asked my team of advisors to help me accelerate my giving through immediate support to people suffering the economic effects of the COVID-19 crisis. They took a data-driven approach to identifying organizations with strong leadership teams and results, with special attention to those operating in communities facing high projected food insecurity, high measures of racial inequity, high local poverty rates, and low access to philanthropic capital. We saw suggestions and perspectives from hundreds of field experts, funders, nonprofit leaders, and volunteers with decades of experience. We leveraged this collective knowledge base in a collaboration that included hundreds of emails and phone interviews, and thousands of pages of data analysis on community needs, program outcomes, and each nonprofit's capacity to absorb and make effective use of funding. We do this research and deeper diligence not only to identify organizations with high potential for impact, but also to pave the way for unsolicited and unexpected gifts given with full trust and no strings attached. Now, Mackenzie Scott's philanthropy is obviously of a scale that dwarfs anything possible by basically any client. However, there's a great deal to be gleaned from how she and her advisors approach it from a personal, philosophical, and operational standpoint. So, Rick, let's start with you as one of the recipients of Miss Scott's philanthropy. Can you discuss what the typical giving process looks like from your end and, and how her gift was different? Sure. Well, so we work at the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation with individuals who are interested in making a charitable gift to usually many institutions. They they usually will approach us, just as a starting point here, they'll approach us and say, I've given to a lot of different institutions in my time, but I sometimes feel like I lack a focus on what impact would look like. So I've been giving to these one, two, three, four, ten different nonprofits over time. Maybe it's been very reactive. And then, but now that I'm working with a community foundation, they can help me understand what is it I think I can do as a family, as an individual to make the most impact. So, so that's how it starts. So we'll have potential donors. We'll have donors we've been working with for a while who might want to course correct and say, you know, I'm, I'm starting to rethink the way I do things. Um, and then we'll also talk with professional advisors who professional advisors who are CPAs, wealth advisors, trust and estates attorneys who are trying to help their clients do their most impactful grant making. So I just give you that as a backdrop because that's the way it usually is. An individual will approach us, a family will approach us, and we'll have a nice conversation. A professional advisor will approach us. We'll have a nice conversation about what that might look like, and then we might get into charitable giving vehicles and, and the right ways to do it from a from a giving perspective. We'll also talk about non-cash assets or other types of assets maybe beyond cash and so on. So in this particular situation, all I can really tell you is that um, when the gift was ultimately made and I read the the medium post that you had just referenced, I looked at the approach that she and her team had used and that made sense to me. What I'm about to tell you is something that I can't say whether or not this was Mackenzie Scott's team, but I'll just tell you something that happened to me and it may or may not be related to how we received the gift. Some consultants reach out to us or reached out to me specifically and said, I need a half an hour with you. We have a, an individual who is or looking to make a gift and we want to ask you some questions. So what they wanted to ask questions about was something called the Community Crisis Action Fund. And that's a fund we set up during 2020 to be responsive to the needs of the community during a time of uh, immense crisis, the, the pandemic. So we set it up and the consultants just 
spent a half an hour just asking questions. What would impact look like? Can you give some examples of what you've done so far? If you received a sizable sum, what would, what would you do with it? And I answered all the questions preparing for that time together by asking my colleagues in the community impact team, help me understand where the community uh, crisis action fund is going in the future. So anyway, we had a nice conversation, the two consultants and me, and we finished. And the consultant said, you will not hear from us again. You will, if you hear from the potential donor, you will, we, they will be disconnected from the conversation we're having right now. And, um, and this may or may not be an anonymous gift. And that's the way it was left. And then about a month or two later, we received word that there was an individual who's going to make a gift. And then that person revealed themselves. And as it turned out, it was Mackenzie Scott making a $6 million gift to our Community Crisis Action Fund, which was about 60% of our total fund because it ended up being $10 million. And she was a big part of that. So that's the whole story. Now, do you normally get, you know, in terms of the gifts you, you normally get, obviously, I'm sure you get many. So this is, you know, I'm asking you to overgeneralize a little bit. But um, are they normally sort of put to a face? Are they, are they anonymous? Are they, do they come with conditions? I'd say it varies. I would say it's not necessarily uh, um, anonymous. Sometimes they are. And if it's anonymous, we make sure they are deeply anonymous. Uh, this could have been deeply anonymous. It could have been a very quiet gift that only a very few people at the institution would have known about. As it turned out, Mackenzie did not want it to be an anonymous gift. So that's mm-hmm. fine. But um, but normally it's really contingent on what the individual wants. There's different ways of being anonymous, too. It can be completely anonymous. It can be that the person sets up a fund that has a generic name on it. So it could be the, the Green Tree Fund, and uh, it could be making gifts into the community to different nonprofits. But the person or the entity receiving the, the uh, gift would not necessarily know who the individuals are that are making that. They know it came from the Green Tree Fund, and that's all they'd know. And then sometimes the uh, individuals are very transparent about the name of the fund, uh, who's making the gift, and they want the receiving institution to know what uh, they're doing, and, uh, and hopefully they can have, have a nice dialogue about it because sometimes those individuals want to continue to make more gifts to that institution. They just want to have a conversation about about what impact might look like. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, we're kind of starting a, a sort of on philanthropic Mount Olympus here. So let's just take it down a, a few levels back to sort of regular humanity. Um, and Jonathan, so when you have a, a client that's shown some sort of philanthropic intent, or you've looked at their, you know, at their plan and identified that philanthropic phil- philanthropy would sort of benefit them, what are the first steps you take in beginning to help a client build out their, their philanthropic plan? <clears throat> It's a great question, and I will start by telling you, sometimes clients don't even know that they have a philanthropic bone in their body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. we start a conversation with a client, listen, you've managed to accumulate significant wealth, you've done a great job, uh, the beneficiaries of the of, of your money will be either one, or one of a few people, either it's gonna be family, friends, or your cousins, Izzy, Robert, and Sam, the IRS. What do you think about it? And, you know, more often than not, they, they kind of look at you a bit perplexed and, and respond with, uh, I'd rather not give the IRS much. I'd like to figure out how to benefit, um, you know, maybe my family more than anybody else. And then uh, charity. 
And it's no different than sometimes we'll ask the client just a very simple question. If you won the lottery and you had a choice of giving 40% to the IRS or 40% to charity, which one would you choose? I've never had a client say they want to give it to the IRS. They've always said they want to give it mm-hmm. to charity. And then we ask, well, which charity would you would you think about donating to? And they usually sit back, they roll their eyes, and like, I haven't really thought about it. But, you know, thinking about it, I'd love to dot, 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 dot. This is an area I think I would really enjoy impacting. And that's usually how the conversation starts to at least identify where their thinking is and open up the opportunity to engage in the conversation of how philanthropy can benefit them, society, and make an impact. So that's how it begins. Then once they they go through that conversation, and as I said, it's a it's a quick conversation. It's 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 just a couple of questions. We begin to focus on what is it that they want to, what do they want to do? What's going to be fun for them? What's going to kind of get their juices going? And not only them, maybe it's their family as well. And then we begin to embark upon how do we go about looking at the overall plan that's in place or the current situation and figuring out the best kind of strategies or vehicles to use to help them accomplish those goals. And there have been times, I'll even add, that often than not, we will call in somebody like a Rick Peck, you know, who has the uh, experience and knowledge and wisdom to help facilitate conversations with the the individual or their family. But that's how it begins. We start with the questions, try to identify the opportunity and the impact they want to have, and then we dive deeper into the conversation. Yeah, this is really a great thing to sort of uh, put the put to button up here, right? Because it's just important to stress that these sort of conversations that you're talking about in this process that you're going through, the, in fact, like the exact process, is is more the norm than than the exception, right? I think a lot of people. You know, think about hear about philanthropy, and then they, they have these in their hearts, these bleeding hearts. You know, people who have been devoted to a cause for their entire mm-hmm. lives, and their entire life dream has been to give away a fortune, and like that's just not reality for the vast majority of people. Most people have spent their lives, you know, building their fortune, and they're not thinking about giving it away. And that's why sort of philanthropy dovetails so nicely with estate planning, because a lot of that, oh, I've never thought about what happens next. I've always I've been in this building mode my entire life. Now, this disbursement mode is, um, this is the first time this is coming to me. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. We've, we recently had a client situation uh, selling a building, and uh, they're going to realize a very significant capital gain. And it's not like, as he said to me, it's not like we need the money, JG. <laughs> you know, I'd love to figure out a way to minimize the income taxes. What do you got up your sleeve? And that led to, well, you know, there are a lot of different vehicles and tools. And, you know, let's talk about ultimately what you really want to see accomplished. And he he's one of these individuals. He's very tied to the local community. Uh, there are things in his area where he lives that are very meaningful to him. He's passionate about the community. Uh, so we started having conversations that led ultimately to, well, hey, 
here is an idea. Let me throw this out and see if it sticks, right? Let's, let's test this out. And that led to a conversation about the use of something called um, a charitable lead trust, which basically says you irrevocably put some money in to a trust and uh, the charity gets the money up front and then your beneficiaries end up with the money at the end. And that opened up a whole dialogue about what's the meaning of the money, what he doesn't want to see happen with the money in terms of both the, the charity and his kids. But ultimately, he pulled the trigger on this because it made sense to him. It resonated to the point of minimize the tax, right? Same time, benefit society, benefit the local community. And he wasn't looking in any way for, you know, to be the marquee name of, hey, we, we did this, we did that. He, he, he's kind of an under-the-radar fellow. But ultimately, he wanted his kids to have something as well. Not right now, but in a couple of years. So, again... It's a matter of a conversation and then walking the th- through the client, what does he like, what doesn't they like, what do they like, what don't they like, and helping them understand what they can and cannot do. <laughs> so and the charitable lead trust is one very interesting option. What are some of the other options available here for clients? I mean, I think you've, you've done a nice job of painting a picture of sort of an example person who might want to use a charitable lead trust. What else is there in, in this world to use? Well. Again, there, there are so many. It d- depends on what the clients are trying to accomplish. We've, mm. we've looked at vehicles for older clients that are looking to generate income right now. Wow, interest rates are pretty low. Uh, the markets are not providing stable interest. So a lot of people are not interested in putting their money into bonds. But what people can do is... Again, whether they're philanthropic or not, there are vehicles and tools, something called a charitable gift annuity that could be very beneficial. And again, example, we had a client who is a graduate of a uh, major institution uh, looking to generate more income than he's actually receiving. And we said, maybe maybe the idea is to to look at implementing an annuity. And he's like, oh, I heard about annuities. I don't like annuities. I said, no, 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 hear me out. Let let me explain. This would have kind of some interesting aspects to it because the money you put in, you'll get back. Some of it will be tax-free. Some will be taxable. But in the end, you know, some of it will go to the charity of your choice. So kind of what do you think about that? And he's like, well, tell me more. And again, opening that dialogue created a a significant opportunity for him to turn some non-income producing assets into an income producing asset while at the same time getting some tax benefits up front, providing some estate benefits in the end, and making a significant impact because ultimately the money will go to charity. So that's another terrific vehicle that I would look at for people that are needing income. Yeah, and it's really all about opening that dialogue, right? That's how you get to these things. You don't come into the client immediately with like, well, this is what I try to apply to every charitable client. I start this conversation, and then we see sort of what will work best for them. Rick, Jonathan used the word uh, accomplish several times in his answer. And then in your first sort of answer, you brought up the term you know, impact a few times. And I think in this day and age, both in terms of charity and in terms of the sort of the growth of impact investing and then the more financial advisory realm, one of the big challenges that people run into is sort of 
how do I show what, what, you know, I've received this money. How do I show the accomplishment? How do I demonstrate the impact visually to the person who's giving me the money so that they are then feel that they have done something and also hopefully they potentially maybe give us more because we're doing a good job. Yeah, I'd say impact can be demonstrated in a number of different ways. It can be as simple as the nonprofit saying, for example, there's the New Hampshire Food Bank. They'll say one dollar equals two meals. It's pretty straightforward. So if you give a hundred dollars, it's two hundred meals, and that's pretty straightforward and powerful. And and you don't need a lot of you don't need a lot of coaching up to see how much you can do for that particular uh, nonprofit. And then other times it's more nuanced. It's um, maybe there's the nonprofit is just starting out. It needs a little bit of uh, seed money. It needs a, it needs a new executive director. There's some things that you you can't quite put your finger on, but there are. Uh, certain indicators that would help this nonprofit thrive, maybe in an environment where there's complementary nonprofits out there. So th- that's where it gets a little more gray. And our mm-hmm. senior program officers and the community impact team, my my colleagues, that's what they do all the time. They go down to the the geographic level. So some of them are assigned by geography, and some of them are assigned by. Uh, certain type of topics so the environment or substance use disorder work or things like that child care or early childhood education that's their that's their area of expertise so they can provide sometimes a bigger picture overview to say um, mr mrs donor this is what your dollars are doing in the aggregate so maybe there's some advocacy happening or there's some more granular work that's being done but we want to make sure that you understand how important it is to support this work on the whole because many many gifts like this many people working toward this will ultimately will find ourselves in a better place than we are today so so that's more of a narrative so i guess that's mm-hmm. that's different ways that you can bring the the idea of impact to people but many times um if it's not the data that's pretty straightforward it's uh it's an expert trying to paint the picture of what success might look like both short and long term so we've talked about charity sort of, you know, philanthropy as, as sort of useful in an estate planning context in terms of estate tax and in terms of, you know, just meeting, you know, personal accomplishments and goals. What other sort of roles can philanthropy play in an estate plan, Jonathan? Well, <laughs> interesting you bring it up as we rapidly approach um, some of the holidays. It's been one of those topics with the patriarch or matriarch of a family. How do we get our kids involved? Mm-hmm. How do, we, how do we help kind of pass down our value, more importantly than the money, <laughs> right? How do, we, how do we get our kids to embrace the values that our family stands for and, and what we can do? So the conversations and the tools that are available tend to then trickle down, for lack of a better term, to talking with the family about how do we... How do we as a family unit, right? Not just me, mom and dad, or grandma and grandpa, but how do we as a family unit look at the money we have, the wealth we have to impact society? And maybe let's talk with, let's let's get all the kids together, family, family meeting, and create a family giving plan. And example, you know, give give some of the kids a couple of thousand dollars or something along those lines to 
get them started with their own ideas about what philanthropy is and how it's impactful and what is the meaning of money to them as individuals as well as the family. So when you look at the family as a unit, and hopefully that's the way people look at it is we have this wealth, let's get everyone involved in giving. Let's get everyone's feedback. Let's get everyone's input to talk about what's important to them. And then from there, creating some sort of game plan and a written game plan of specifically how they want to use money, treasure, time, whatever it is uh, to accomplish the family's goals as well as feeling good about what they're doing. So that that's kind of how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. I like this idea of leaving it open-ended, right? And sort of how this is our family approach to giving, period. As opposed to, you know, some families can easily fall into, you know, even though you have all the best intent in the world and everyone is philanthropic, you can sort of fall into this, well, our family gives to AIDS research, or that's just an example, right? And maybe, you know, even though you've, you know, that you've successfully passed on your philanthropic values to the children, well, you know, maybe they care more about leukemia or world hunger or some other equally valid cause. And it's like, well, we have all this infrastructure in place, so this rigid infrastructure for giving to AIDS research, and what do we do? No, you got to do this. And you can kind of cause philanthropy to almost like sour and, and create its own pressures if you sort of fo- try to force it on even philanthropic people. Yeah, this, this is, clearly this is about engagement, engaging mm-hmm. the younger generations to take an active role in the, the development uh, and again, it's multi-generational. It's, it's not just mom and dad's thinking, but mom and dad want to see their kids think on their own. That's really the key is they are now the guardians of, of the wealth as well as the family values. So they want to develop, again, my opinion, you really want to develop the kids to think on their own. Uh, you want to engage them in a way where they're given the freedom to think differently than what mm-hmm. mom and dad may have thought and pass the baton in a way that everyone is proud and it accomplishes ultimately the goal for the family. Yeah, so. Rick, on this show, I don't know if you've noticed, but we, we throw the term kids around a lot, and a lot of times, because it's an estate planning show and, and the initial generation we're talking about is in their 80s or something, you know, we say kids and we're talking about a 55-year-old. I think in this case, we're talking about actual either children or young adults. From your end, in, what do you do to sort of attempt to foster? How much of a role do you play in trying to foster this next generation um, philanthropy and, and engagement? Is it different from trying to do it with, with you know, the adult donors or, or is there something you know, extra that you, that you put out there? I think just to echo what JG was talking about, it's about engagement. There's, I'll just tell you from the first generation's perspective, here's, here's a good example and then kind of parlay that to second generation. First generation, there was a group of women that gathered together in Hanover, New Hampshire. And they came together because they said, we're first generation, we've helped to create this wealth. But we are seriously concerned about second and third generation. Are they going to carry the torch? And we don't care, quite frankly, if they support the same types of nonprofits that we have supported. We want them just to care about making an impact in the world through philanthropy. That's a very deep concern of ours. 
So this group of women, they actually still get to once a quarter and talk about that. It just they, they want to know who's their cohort, who's their peer group. How can they talk about these things in a safe place? Because um, you wouldn't think that that would be a major concern. You'd think, oh, first generation, they're just doing what they do and everything's fine. But no, they, they really are deeply concerned about the future. So I think to parlay that to the second generation, second generation says, we do appreciate what mom and dad have done or what our grandparents did, but we do have some different ideas. We don't want to be uh, beholden to whatever the ideas were of the future. They might have been perfectly fine for that particular period of time, but the environment or whatever it is, racial justice, these are certain things that are prevalent now and we want to be able to take uh, advantage of that and, and start making a difference. So. Um, so I think a respect for the second generation, knowing that they have great ideas, they are passionate about certain things, and the first generation letting letting them take that and, and running with that, there's no shortage of problems in the world to solve. And I think that just a multifaceted approach, right, fortunately or unfortunately, there's lots of problems to solve in the world. So to have that perspective where first generation says, this was our niche, second generation says this is what we're going to be focusing on is is a great uh springboard for the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh generations to say we focused on the issues of that time it didn't have to be in lockstep with what the first generation did mm-hmm. yeah, Rick, I, I think it's very apropos also that the example you chose highlighted a group of women because I, I don't know if you guys have seen the same, but in all the research I've seen is that philanthropy in this country is heavily female-driven and remains so to this day. And that's just something for advisors to be aware of. Unfortunately, too many advisors still default to the old uh, method of, of speaking with you know the husband in the traditional relationship, or, or you know the, even and is sort of ignoring the wife. Where you know as part of the philanthropic, philanthropic conversation, she may be the driver, she may be the one who has all the ideas, and be, be the one who you actually be engaging with, regardless if she happens to be you know the one who's who's the breadwinner for the family. That's absolutely right. And just to get, jump back to Mackenzie Scott and Jeff Bezos, clearly Mackenzie Scott yes. has a vision of what she wants to accomplish. Um, philanthropically, I don't seem to get that same message from Jeff Bezos, and that just shows the two people. Obviously, they were a couple, but still, that how things play out philanthropically are very different for each of them, right? Yeah, it's really a, a crazy dichotomy, right? To look at sort of what Mackenzie Bezos has done, just in terms of volume, but also in terms of organization and mission. And then, meanwhile, we've got Jeff Bezos on Twitter, like trying to like, hey, what should I, who should I give money to? <laughs> but you know. We're just about running out of time here, guys. Obviously, this is a giant topic, and we could talk for hours about it, but i got to keep the show around half an hour. So I'd like to thank uh, Richard Pack and Jonathan Gassman for just being great guests and really sharing some enlightening information about philanthropy and how it can sort of fit into a normal client's plan. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank Thank you you. very much for having us. And for our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.
Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com.